This is the Microsoft Cloud Show, episode 302, where today CJ and I are going to recap the recent Microsoft Build Conference, recorded live May the 10th, 2019. If you could score an extra hour or two back in your day, would you take it? Because our friends over at Nintex want to give you a gift, the gift of time. Seriously, if you haven't checked out what Nintex has to offer lately, you should. The platform built on Azure has evolved a lot. In just the past few months, the Nintex team has added new process mapping capabilities, and most recently, a new e-sign capability called Nintex Sign, powered by Adobe Sign. Nintex also continues to revolutionize products you know and trust, including Nintex Workflow and Forms. With the power of Nintex, it is faster and easier for you to configure, not code, giving you valuable time back every day to spend it however you want. Test drive the Nintex Process Cloud at Nintex.com. Hey, hey, Mr. Johnson. Belated, may the fourth be with you. Ah, and the Revenge of the Sith to you. <laughs> How's it going, buddy? Pretty good. Pretty good, thank you. It's been a crazy week. Been at Build. So, uh, been out of the office and um, geeking out with a bunch of people in Seattle. I guess we'll get into Build in a bit before we go into yeah. the how was it, because it's we got a lot to talk about there. But um, this is one of those episodes where, like, Two major events happened this week, and it's going to be very hard for us to cover everything that was in these both of these these events. And we want to hit some highlights, some hot button things, but there's a, a whole lot of additional stuff that you definitely want to go check it out. And uh, I do like that on YouTube. You, I went to YouTube and I searched for Microsoft Build and Google I/O, and it was nice to see that a lot of them, like VentureBeat and Engadget, they've done, here's the build conference or all the announcements in 13 minutes, or here's the Google I.O. developer keynote in seven minutes. And it, they That's just, useful. yeah, so those things have been, they've been really helpful. But like, I got a call from a buddy of mine, even just maybe about an hour ago. And he's like, have you looked at the stuff that came out with, with Logic Apps? I'm like, I haven't got a chance to look at it just yet. He's like, oh my God. I'm like, I wish I had more time to be able to dive into it so yeah. I can talk about the podcast. But <laughs> he basically yeah, gave me an idea for a show. <laughs> It's a waterfall of stuff, right? So it's hard to keep up. Yeah. So I guess before we dive into this stuff, hey, what's up with you? What's new with you in the, these days? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, so outside of the build stuff this week, last weekend, I I was tutoring around, you know, this thing we've been, I've been yapping about with the cloud market share analysis project I'm doing? Yeah. I added some more data to it, Got finally got some more time to spend on it. I'm adding different data sets. So I started with just like the Fortune 1000 analysis. Mm -hmm. And now I've added this thing called the Grojo 10,000, which is all of the 10,000 fastest growing companies under 1,000 employees. So I've got that analysis up there and I've just added the Fortune 5,000 analysis, or sorry, the Inc. 5,000 list. And I've just got hold of a the Alexa, not the voice assistant. There was a company called Alexa that Amazon bought. Amazon own it now, but it was called, it's the Alexa 1 million, which mm -hmm. is, the 1 million highest trafficked domain names mm -hmm. uh, or sites, I guess. And so I'm doing the analysis on that at the moment. And anyway, so I posted all that up and made a few updates to, to this cloudmarketshare.com thing. My web design is terrible, but I'm slowly adding more data to it and tracking it over time. So kind of fun, just mucking around on the weekend with it and, and getting a bit of... Uh, cloud development done. It's all running in Kubernetes and all that sort of stuff. So it's, I don't know, it's kind of fun to do. That's cool. So yeah. the whole thing is all done in containers and or the, the, like the website is? Yeah, the website runs in a container. 
there's a couple of containers. There's like the website and then there's what I call an ingest container, which is like it runs while it's ingesting and doing the analysis. And then it stores all of the data that it finds in table storage. And then the web, the web container uses that table storage to you know, pull the data out and display it. So it's so very said, basic right now. It's, it's only two containers. So you said ingest with a G, not with a C, right? Correct. Not your incest container. No, it's okay. definitely not that. <laughs> Just, I was curious which data center that ran in, but that's okay. It ingests the lists of domain names that I want it to go and analyze. That's where the theory of that name came from. <laughs> but now I I'm going to make it the incest container and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> you may get some really weird, like deformed data that comes out the other side, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to put up some firewalls between it and the other containers in its own family. Never mind. <laughs> this is getting bad. Yeah, that, so, that yeah. container scale-out process doesn't fan out, right? It just kind of goes in a nice linear path. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Oh, yep. Man, I'm, di- I'm digging a hole. This is probably not a good idea. No, that's a bad analogy. So, yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah, how about you? What are you what's new in uh, your world? Uh, no incest. So, we... Uh, <laughs> Glad to hear it, buddy. Congratulations. <laughs> Yeah, last week I was at the the SharePoint Fest conference in Washington, D.C. I had a really heavy schedule there, like a full day workshop, a half day workshop, three breakout sessions. It went really well. It went really well for me. I know that there was one thing that happened there that went really badly for everybody else. We'll get to that in just a, in a couple of minutes. But uh, so that was a big thing. Also, this week I published a big update to my SharePoint framework development course with... Um, a new chapter around how to use like SharePoint Framework in different surfaces. I like using it for, you can now use like SharePoint Framework web parts as the custom tab in a Microsoft Teams team. And then also you could use it as essentially the host for a single page app. And so I show how to do both of those things. And it's, I tell you, those two, those are two of like the biggest updates to the SharePoint Framework in terms of like usefulness that I can think of. There's a, like for instance, I do a, it's causing me to want to move more stuff into Microsoft Teams. So I've wanted to build a little app that would let me make, I do a, a bi-weekly newsletter and yeah. just, I collect links over the course of two weeks. And I want to have a way that would be easier for me to, to really triage those. So I collect links and then I categorize them into one of three categories and like news official from Microsoft, resources and samples, and then community stuff like blogs or events. And I do that. I add a little bit of extra, you know, my description, maybe change the title of what the link is. And then I also sort them. And right now I do it all on a SharePoint list. And frankly, the SharePoint list experience is just crap. And it's not because of the SharePoint list, but it's just a, it's the wrong tool to do what I'm doing. Mm. So I've wanted to build a SharePoint framework web part that made it easier to do that. But putting that, like creating a page and then putting that on the page, just, it just felt weird. Now in SharePoint Online, there's an experience when you go to create a new page, you get this new dialogue that pops up and it goes, what kind of a page you want to create? Or if you've created a web part and you've put just one little flag in there in your web part manifest, Mm -hmm. there's a new tab that shows up in the new page interface that's now called apps. And your web part shows up and what the SharePoint framework does or SharePoint Online does is it creates a new page on your site, lets you give it a name that's going to go into the quick launch. And then there's no... Like it's just one web part page with your web part on it, but there's no uh, there's no way to add more web parts to it. There's no like way to put one, the web part in one yeah. zone for one part. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, 
It's yeah, like the technicals. It's one canvas for the entire web part, and so it's neat because I can then have the app running inside of SharePoint on my SharePoint Online site, and then I can also in my Microsoft Teams team that I use for some stuff, I can go create a new tab and say use this. So yeah, nice. And that was I put that in the chapter, and then Microsoft also had a big update or a big fix update to the SharePoint framework in one point eight point two. The whole one point eight experience has been. It's been good and bad. I mean, 1.8.0 introduced a bunch of regressions. It had new features and then a bunch of regressions. And then they came out with 1.8.1, which fixed some of those regressions, but then introduced some other problems about memory management. Mm. And then, well, I guess it didn't introduce it. They just, some weird stuff happened. And then 1.8.2 came out, which is like the fix of the fix of the release. Yeah. So they got to get better at that. But I got a couple links in the show notes that part to the... This update to the course and then also to the 1.8.2 update. But yeah, gotcha. A lot of stuff. Nice. And then you and I are facing, we're going to be uh, looking at the SharePoint conference coming up in just about two weeks from now, too. So yeah, it's getting close, actually. It's sneaking up. And um, well, I'm looking forward to hanging out in Vegas. Well, not so much the Vegas part, but with you and of course, any of our Cloud Show friends. So um, hit us up. We'll have stickers. We'll, we'll bring some stickers along and do mm. a few things like that. I've got some in my bag. So, yeah, hit us up and uh, come find us. Say hi. Always like saying hello. And uh, But, yeah, looking forward to chin-wagging in person at the show. Yeah, we'll have, unlike last year, we're not doing live shows or we're not doing official like live shows from the conference. I haven't heard anything from them about a podcasting center. I know that they had it in the plans, but yeah, they, they haven't told us anything about it. So Yeah, I haven't heard anything um, or the other podcasters, I heard the same, they're saying the same thing. Nobody's heard anything. So it's a little disappointing on the way that's being done. But I mean, I'd love to sit down and talk. Somebody's doing something cool with it or with SharePoint or Office 365 or Azure or, you know, cloudy stuff, you know, reach out to us, watch CJ and us on the podcast Twitter handle and also on Facebook. We may do some impromptu Facebook lives. We may have a little meetup that we end up doing if somebody, if some people want to join us. But um, yeah, it's uh, we will definitely be there and looking forward to the show and Hanging out with you and hopefully meeting some uh, meeting some of our attendees in person. Exactly. Yes. I'm not attendee. Sorry, meeting our listeners. listeners in person. Yep. All right. Excellent. Should we get into so, it? Let's start getting into. It. We got a lot of stuff to get through. So before we do that, though, we want to uh, have a nice word from one of our awesome sponsors, including ShareGate, who recently have joined the show. Um, but we want to hear from some of our awesome sponsors that make this show possible. For those of us familiar with ShareGate, we know that they've always been about SharePoint and Office 365 migration. But now that we've all moved to the cloud, like me, you're probably thinking, how about how to scale your Office 365 to a full self-serve environment without worrying about thousands of groups and teams popping up out of nowhere, AKA sprawl. That's why the folks at ShareGate developed ShareGate Apricot. It's a solution that helps us automate our Office 365 group's governance by allowing us to collaborate with users to keep everyone accountable for the things they create. Their super simple to use in-app experience lets us lighten our load by delegating group management responsibilities to users we trust, AKA no more sprawl. Want to get your hands on ShareGate Apricot? Try it for free for 30 days at sharegate.com slash college show. All right, CJ, before we get into the build stuff, I want to yeah. throw one bit of big news out there that we don't really need to debate too much, but I thought it would be, it's interesting. But then I want to get into something a little bit more depressing. Unfortunately, not, a full page not found. Yeah, exactly. It's not, <laughs> not, not, not so much, it's depressing. Unfortunately, not so much surprising these days. But um, yeah. the first thing is, 
Got an article here from TechCrunch. Did you know that the CEO of Docker is stepping down? I didn't, but I saw you put this link in the notes and I clicked through and had a read. That is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Poor old Docker. It's, I mean, they're just, like we talked about before, they're just kind of, they're finding their way of the, in the CEO yeah. space. He's been there so, two years, which is, I wouldn't say a long time, but it's not a short time either, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. But you're right, like that, they're flapping around trying to find how to make money as a business. And I was amazed, like in this article, it says they've only got 750 paying enterprise customers. That's not yeah. very many. It doesn't seem like it. I mean, it, it does sound too like this is not, it doesn't sound like he's being pushed out. He worked to find a successor. The guy that's taking over is the former CEO of Hortonworks, a guy named Rob Bearden. And he sold, uh, Hortonworks was uh, sold to Cloudera last year. And so the current CEO, Steve Singh, uh, reached out to him and saw that, you know, he's like, hey, and who knows if this is definitely, this is true, but at least the way that TechCrunch is reporting it, that the current CEO that's stepping down was tired of putting, putting in 75 hours a week at Docker, but he wanted to make sure they left the company in the capable hands of somebody else and who could take the company to the next level. And so he kind of handpicked the right person to do it. So, I mean, if there's going to be a transition, this is kind of the way you want it to, you want to do it, right? Yeah, no, definitely. The interesting thing, so Steve Singh used to be, I think he was like the the CEO of Concur that bought TripIt. Remember? And he, they joined SAP for a little bit, then left and went to Docker and was basically charged with, you know, the only future for Docker was making money from enterprises and sort of getting them on the right track for that. So maybe he feels like he's achieved that. Maybe Maybe he's like... Had worked super hard, obviously, got it sailing in the right direction in, in that regard, but wanted a bit of a change. So, yeah, and they, I mean, they got a little bit of grief last year for, was it for, um, they took $72 million in investment last year. A lot of people said, hey, that, that's a sign that the company is struggling. But he took that money. He said he took the money with the idea of investing in revenue growing enterprises. And yep. they, like last week was DockerCon. And a lot of those things that he invested in, that was stuff that was debuted or announced last week. So mm. they say they don't need any more money, that they're in good shape. So, I mean, it looks like, you know, it was an investment in the company and it's working. So, or at least they, it looks like it's going to work. So it always fascinates me watching companies that have come out of the valley, try to make money in the enterprise. Mm-hmm. It's very, I don't know. I don't want to sound too snarky, but there's not many, there's not very many of them that succeed at it. Mm-hmm. They sort of come at it from a very, non-enterprise space mm-hmm. and then they suddenly realize like the only way they can make any money is by you know charging companies for enterprise software mm-hmm. and they're just not very good at it well it's not in their dna it's not in the dna no. of the people who actually started the tech i mean they're exactly more the- yeah none of the founders of that well very few come from that space they don't really realize how difficult it is you see like like box for example they've done a reasonable job of it but that, that's a classic example. Dropbox is another one. You know, they don't make much money from consumers, right? They, their whole business is enterprise. So they've been pivoting over the last few years around around business. And business just, the sales cycles are longer. Their features are really weird that people that come from consumer world don't understand. It's just a different kettle of fish. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Bit of news there. And then we have another one. This is the one I wanted yeah. to allude to from the conference. So yeah. So last week I'm doing a session at 
SharePoint Fest DC. And the session was all about using third-party APIs in the SharePoint framework. And I was most nobly talking about using APIs or endpoints that were both anonymous and secured. And the secured ones were secured with Azure AD. So the majority of my session was all about using SharePoint Online, SharePoint Framework, and Azure AD to talk to things like the Microsoft Graph or custom services that are secure with Azure AD. And I did it using a function. Yeah. Everything went fine with my session. And then right when I get off the stage, the next speaker comes running in as I'm doing questions. And they're like, did you get screwed? I'm like, I don't think so. I'll, I'll wait until I see the evals, but I think everything looks, I think everything went okay. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, SharePoint's down. I'm like, SharePoint's down? Which of course is what every SharePoint person said. SharePoint's down, SharePoint's down. It's like, no, SharePoint's not down. <laughs> it's a bigger problem. DNS, Microsoft yet again. I know, stop me if you've heard this one, CJ. Azure had a DNS problem. <laughs> you don't say. I know. So when there's an issue, it either comes down to DNS or certificates. Yeah. <laughs> or sorry, I should add to that. DNS, certificates, or Azure AD. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and all of it's kind of like everybody in South Central is like, yeah, just drinking their coffee. Like, yep, that's us. Yeah, that's still so, recovery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So this is the an incident. The tracking ID for it is R50C, as in Charlie, dash 5RZ, as in Zulu. I have a link to it in the show notes, which, you know... I haven't managed to make this work. Come on, Microsoft. Like, have publicly accessible status pages without having to sign in. And don't give me the bullshit that I need a status page that's specific to my tenant. Like, nobody else on the planet does this makes it super impossible to find status and make you sign in, which is ridiculous because if Azure AD is having a hawked day, you can't get to your own status page. And apparently they've got some publicly accessible thing mm. that's not quite as... But anyway, all the links are to this thing that you've got to sign into and it's like, eh. well, well, okay, so hold on. I, I Here's what I did. Now, I hear your rant. I'm kind of there with you, but I'm gonna actually, I'm going to push back a wee bit on you. I think... All the public, so Microsoft does have a status page and they, when the outage is going on, you can see stuff from that status page. The link that I'm sharing here is what's called the RCA, the root cause analysis. And it is, hey, everything's healthy in Azure right now. So here's where you can go log into your portal and you can see details about this root cause analysis, about on the root cause analysis on this incident that affected you. So you can get into it. But yeah, to, well, Azure to has a public status page as well. Yeah. That's, and, that's and to your point though, is that the Google Public Cloud, AWS, Mike, uh, Azure, Office 365, the one thing that they all do a very good job of is not giving you an easy way to reference a specific issue. Meaning right. that they do a damn good job of obfuscating this stuff. And so this was the only link that I could find that was close, that was close enough to give you a deep link to something. But I mean, if you want to go, if you want to find like, you know, what's the, is, the issue that's going on, the reason I read the code out for the actual incident was that people could go try and find it. But right now it's just like, oh, the f this is just, this is such a pain in the ass. So, yeah. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, that was, that was, I might've gone over the board on that one. But it's just, <laughs> it is such a pain though to see this kind of stuff. And so it's just, I mean, yet again, it went out. What was it? Well, as part of planned maintenance activity, Microsoft, Eng I'm reading from the root cause. As part of planned maintenance activity, Microsoft engineers executed configuration change, change to update one of the name servers for DNS zones used to reach several Microsoft services. I don't know, apparently all of them. 
including yeah. Azure Storage and SQL Database. A failover, a failure in the change process resulted in one of our one of the four name servers records for these zones to point to a DNS server having blank zone data and returning negative responses. The result was that approximately 25% of the queries for domains used by these services produced incorrect results and reachability, never heard that word, to these services was degraded. Consequently, multiple other Azure and Microsoft services that depend on those core services were also impacting to varying degrees. Okay, here's the part that pisses me off about this, where it says, a failure in the change process resulted in one of the four name servers records for these zones. Whatever the rest of it says, that's fine. But I thought that we were supposed to have like redundancy with this stuff. And that's the thing with Azure AD that kind of ticks me off. It's like, when, I get that at some point there's gotta be a single point of failure, but there's too many single points of failure happening with Azure since last September. What, when it, I mean, it's just getting so freaking old of nobody from Microsoft stepping up and saying, we recognize, I, I would love for someone at a senior level of Microsoft or with some sort of, of clout it doesn't have to be Scott Guthrie. It doesn't have to be Alex Simmons. It doesn't have to be somebody like that. It can be anybody that can stand up for Microsoft and say, we acknowledge that since September of 2018, we have had more outages than should have been there. And here are the, here are the things that we've seen. And here are the steps that we are doing. It's taking some time to fix it. But something like that, I don't even know if that's a problem. Yeah. I would love to see that because right now, there's nothing publicly that says they recognize that this is no longer a incident or an occurrence or a trend, right? Yeah. They see it right now as just as a, as one-off outages. And I don't know. I mean, I'd love to see someone go back and do the analysis for this, but let's compare the, the uptime to Google Cloud Platform and AWS. I'm just curious. I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but it sure does feel that Azure's having a lot more outages than these other guys are. It does feel like that. And I honestly feel like the only way that will happen is if large enterprise customers call out execs on this problem. Otherwise, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and doesn't make a noise kind of thing. Yeah. I like it that a failure in the change process, aka somebody fat fingered a script yeah. and ended up pointing up something at the wrong place. And then the 25% of queries, like, the whole freaking service was down. Like, mm -hmm. it wasn't just some people. It wasn't even 25% of people. From what I saw, nobody was hitting 365 and getting in in certain, certainly certain capacities. And reachability, aka, it was down. Stoked <laughs> <laughs> reachability. What does that even mean? Yeah. And consequently, multiple other Azure and Microsoft services that depend on these core services were also impacted to varying degrees they were down. Yeah. But you're right. There is a trend of quite high profile, catastrophic failure since September. And I don't know, it's like they come and go, but people don't really calling them out on it. Like it's not really causing that many ripples, honestly, from what I've seen. I know I just kind of went off and kind of got real agitated by it, but I'm just, I'm a fan of Azure. I'm a fan of Office 365. I like them. I like them over the other options that are out there. I like the cost structure of it. Yeah. I like everything about it. I like the integration of everything together. I like the openness of it. The API. I love, I love all of this stuff. So it's not like, I don't say, I, I'm spanking you, but it hurts me more than it hurts you. And it yeah. just, God, it just, it's like, like I said at a conference last week and, you know, and we finished the sessions and that night I met dinner with some people. I'm like, how'd your session go? Like, I did a flow session. I'm like, oh yeah, how did that go? I'm like, well, I was during the Azure outage. I'm like, oh, that must have sucked. What did you do? Sock your puppets? <laughs> was it all like sock puppets and like drawing stuff? Like going, no, what did you show? I was like, I was showing Power BI. Oh, sweet. In the cloud. I'm like, oh, sorry. 
you know, all this yeah. stuff. So like the next day, I, st- I got up there to do my session. I was like, how many of you were in my session yesterday? And they t- everybody raised their, or a bunch of people raised their hand. I was like, okay, I would just like to make it clear that when you do secured services in Azure AD with Azure Functions, you call them from SharePoint Framework, contrary to what I demonstrated yesterday that you can bring down all of Azure, that's not normally what happens. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if TechSmith see an uptick in Camtasia and Snagit licensing during an Azure outage, you know, when people um, need to go record their demos. Yeah. I mean, just, that's the other thing too. It happened right before the build conference, right? Mm. No outages during build is maybe it's going to happen again. You know, let's see. That's an interesting question actually, because remember last year, right before build, there was a big Azure AD outage as well. Oh, I think it was during build, wasn't it? Yes, it was during build. Yeah, you're right. Interesting. I don't know. Dun, I think it dun, just called, I, we're saying it was during build or right before build. I think it's just called Tuesdays, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Savage. Anyway. Okay. Speaking of build. Speaking of build, let's move on and let's talk a little bit about some of the big news that came out of build. Struggling to reproduce problems in your code base? Successful software starts with Raygun. Raygun provides application performance monitoring, unlike anything that you've experienced before offering greater clarity around how your software is performing for your customers than any other APM provider. Easily detect and diagnose issues impacting end users and monitor every part of your stack in one place. It's time to get back to building great software instead of fighting it. Start your journey to better software quality and try Raygun for free at raygun.com today. Hey, we all know that sometimes shift happens. That's why this spring, the inaugural Shift Happens Conference will be coming to Washington, D.C. on June 12th and 13th. Hear from industry heavy hitters, change agents, and innovators as they share digital transformation wisdom. With keynotes from Microsoft's Jeff Teeper and Tony Towns-Whitley, and analyst insights from Constellation and Forrester Research, this event is not to be missed. Over two days, find out how to get the most out of your Microsoft Office 365 and SharePoint investments and hear about the success and failures firsthand from some of the largest and most regulated organizations. For more information, visit www.shifthappenscon.com and use the discount code CLOUDSHOW for 25% off registration for both single and group discounts. All right, CJ, you were there. I was not. How was it? How was build? It was okay. Yeah. I thought it was pretty reasonable and okay because I thought it was a solid conference. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty good from an in-person perspective. Obviously, lots of good sessions going on and things like that, of which I went to none. But the expo was great, the keynotes and all of that sort of stuff. Like It was, it was really, I go for the side meetings, really, in all honesty, mm-hmm. and the sessions now, But because you can watch a bunch of that stuff recorded. So overall, I thought it was a solid effort. The reason I say it was, I'm not like blown away or you know blown out of the water by it because I didn't feel like there was a OMG moment like mm-hmm. a oh my goodness I can't believe they just launched that or a big surprise or a really exciting thing that I latched onto when that's what I care about from this show like there wasn't one of those for me this year but the steady march of progress was definitely in in force right it was plenty of news. Lots going on with Azure and Windows Dev, lots going on with .NET, some 365 stuff, some graph stuff. Like, it was a solid show, a solid amount of news coming out of Build this year. Yeah, and I know that you don't, you're like me, we don't, we generally don't go to keynotes. I would rather, especially if they're streamed, I would much rather watch it like in the speaker room or in my hotel room or something. I just don't want to, 
I don't want to deal with the crowd of trying to find a crappy seat and mill the keynote. I've had coffee in the morning. I got to use the restroom. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. deal with that. And I guess part of me was a little more negative on this lot earlier in the week. And I wonder if this is just the new normal and I, I'm being unfair, but I totally agree with you that there was no wow moment from mm-hmm. the stuff that I saw from Bill. There's like, that's cool. Oh, that's good. I'll be able to use that. That's good progress. Mm. But the part to me that kind of stood out was that, I mean, I watched all three of the keynotes. I watched the the Vision keynote by Satya. I watched the one for basically like Windows, Office, Microsoft 365. 365, yeah. Yeah, I watched that one live. And then I, wa- oh no, I watched the Azure one live with Scott Guthrie. And then I watched the Microsoft 365 one recorded. And I tell you, the the one thing that stood out to me about all three of them was how no energy they were. I mean, they were just, they were boring. And the, the audience in the room felt the same way. I mean, I, Scott Guthrie's out there just rattling off all these announcements of like, we're doing this, and we're doing this, and we're happy to announce this, and you know, SQL hyperscale, and we're doing you know, SQL server at, um, serverless, so you can do it like Azure Functions and pay just what you use. And I'm sitting there thinking, and I'm like, God, are we just conditioned that this is how it is now with so many releases coming out like this? And so we're not, we're not like, oh yeah, that's what I was waiting for. And so it just felt to me like there was no energy. I mean, the one I will say, and he's a buddy of ours, but I will say, I, I thought Jeremy Thake did a great job during the Microsoft 365 one when he was talking about graph and showing off a lot of the stuff related to the Microsoft graph that we'll talk about in a minute. I know in person, but felt, you know, it wasn't presentation. I thought that he did a good job for what it was, but I mean, they just, those keynotes, mm, they just make, mm. they're now just boring. I wonder what and, it is. I, I mean, wonder if it's just that we've just gone from these moments in time that are big and we wait for them for three years, right? And then all of the flood of stuff comes out all at once. And then well, you I mean, but, better be excited about it because you got three years of nothing to wait for again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's part of that, but there's part that it, I think too, is just that the, some of these keynotes are just they're so scripted. And I was surprised too, like the very first thing that they did at the, with like the virtual reality thing with Satya, I mean, that, I didn't see that part, but apparently that failed. Was that a, well, so I spoke to somebody about it because uh, I saw that part happen. And it was these two guys who were talking, going to talk about the Apollo 11 virtual, like augmented reality project or something they'd worked on. And um, it was literally the first thing that happened in the keynote, like before anything else happened, these guys got up and, and basically said, well, I guess that's what happens with live demos when they don't work or something, or and then wandered off. And I was like, was that a joke? You, <laughs> was somebody, was that serious? And I talked to somebody at the show who was like, oh yeah, I thought, I thought that was just a poorly landed dad joke. And I was like, <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that was a demo that spectacularly failed. <laughs> that and then the same, did you see the thing with uh, Scott Hanselman and Scott Guthrie? No. No. Oh my God. So remember last year, like the Scott Hanselman's demo kind of screwed up and Guthrie came out and they kind of had this Hell like mic and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Same thing happened this year. And you could tell, I mean, he was like, switch to this monitor, switch to this monitor. Hey, people backstage, I'm, I'm trying to get to monitor number one or trying to go back and forth. And then all of a sudden Scott Goo walks out and he's like, yeah, they're having problems. I came out here to help you. And he's like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I don't know, but I'm noticing a theme. Like, this is the second <laughs> year. And it's just like, well, you don't need to hold my mic. He's like, no, I'm going to hold your mic, but this is kind of awkward yet again. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about dragging this out. But it just, I don't know. I mean, I'm still going through a lot of the stuff because there's so much stuff they pack into it. Mm -hmm. Build always to me was always like the cool thing of the stuff that, you know, some stuff I can use now, some stuff that's coming out in beta and what are we looking at way down the road and what could you expect? And it just doesn't, 
it doesn't feel that way to me. I mean, I hate to say it like this, but I don't really see a need for build anymore. Hmm. I mean, I'd consider chopping it and making it more. I mean, I would take the company and have like, you've got a consumer type conference. So that's like the surface events and all that kind of stuff. Things only last apparently for two years before they die. Shouldn't say that. that's probably that's <laughs> fair from my experience at least. Yeah, and then they they have maybe a like an Azure session, and then a Microsoft three sixty five session, a conference, and they split them up because right now I know Build's supposed to be for devs, Inspire's supposed to be for partners, and yep. Ignite's supposed to be for IT pros. But there's a lot of dev. Ignite is the one to go to. It's the command performance. Inspires the command performance if you're an ISV or a partner, you got to go there too. But build, I'm just like, I just, I haven't seen a, a real, there's no draw there to go to build anymore to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think they could, you mean, so I always hoped that the original SharePoint conference, not the, the reincarnated version, I always felt like when its time was up and everybody knew that, that it would morph into a Office 365 conference which would now have turned into a Microsoft 365 conference, which is really the sort of the productivity conference, right? It's, it's about sort of enterprise collab and productivity workloads. I think that would be, that's a fair call because then you can have all the audiences that are involved in enterprise productivity and collab. Because So as an Office 365 person, you always feel a little bit out of, out of place at build, mm-hmm. right? Because even if you're doing graph development and stuff, there's people that are walking around that are doing like Windows development and like stuff with WPF that you have like almost nothing in common with. IoT, HoloLens. And yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that you just don't... It's interesting, but it's not part of your day job. Right. Whereas I feel like what was great about the original SPC was that amalgamation of, of roles all coalescing around like the same thing. Even if you were standing next to somebody at a social event and you were talking to them and they were like a business analyst doing something or other with SharePoint, at least you you had a real or everything was common. Whereas I worry that builds to turning into the next tech ed, and yeah, just like a mashup, a mashup of everything dev. But anyway, I don't know. It just yeah, I don't know. I mean, is, is it doesn't balance. It really is a tough balance. But I mean, that's the other thing too is that does it. Does it make sense to say devs go here and IT pros go here? Because I mean, so much of our lives are overlapped. Yeah. So I mean, it, should they just go with like Salesforce and just say one big ass show a year? Well, that's Ignite, right? Well, not really, because they have Build. That's what I was saying. It's like let's get rid of Build and just make Ignite bigger. Yeah. So I mean, I get in, Inspire. I see the need for, but yeah, Inspire is quite a different show. Inspire's yeah, it's really a business show, right? It's like how do you make money as a Microsoft partner? That's, there's a few technical sessions, but nothing too deep. Anyway, that's conference strategy. Should we talk about what happened at Build? Yeah, let's run through. Uh, we got a, a handful of things to run through. Of course, there's a lot of stuff that we're going to miss. I'm going to come at these kind of a little bit of rapid fire here. I got three of them that I'd like to do, talk to you about with Microsoft Graph. Cool. Um, they had a pretty good event. I think that the big thing for the first big one that's kind of a little hanging fruit is that uh, Microsoft Graph Data Connect, we sat down and talked to Tyler from the Graph Data Connect team in episode 299 just a couple weeks ago. And they have gone into the GA milestone. So they're now, Graph Data Connect is now generally available. And again, as just a recap, this is the product that allows you to take 
instead of using graph for like transactional kind of queries on just like, you know, let me get mail for Andrew. It's more that let me get all the mail for these people across this time in my organization, export it, put it over here as a big corpus of data and let me kind of mess with it. Analyze it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's gone GA. They also have a, I believe it's a developer preview of a thing called the graph toolkit, Mm. which is essentially like a bunch of web components, a bunch of UI components that you can use that all of the business logic has already been built to leverage the graph and get data from the graph. So you can have like a, a persona card or a calendar card or something like that that shows you stuff coming straight from your Microsoft 365 data that graph exposes. Makes it really easy for developers to leverage this stuff. And then the other big thing that they did, which is which is not really graph, but I'm going to put it in the graph category, is that finally, but I'm going to put a big asterisk on this, the Microsoft Authentication Library, MSAL, has finally gone GA. I don't believe it. But just for .NET derivative stuff and JavaScript. So just for .NET Framework, .NET Core, and a JavaScript piece. But if you're on iOS, you got to wait. Android, you got to wait. Java, you got to wait. Or you could just skip all this Microsoft library BS and just do it yourself. That's what I. That's the way I prefer to do it. Me too. Yeah. You know that MSAL, I think if I'm not mistaken, MSAL no longer gives you access to the re- refresh token. You can't get it. They don't expose it. What? That's the black box piece that turns me off about this stuff. That stuff irritates me. I just yeah. rather so, hand roll it myself. It's easier. I would too. What do you, wait, you live in Seattle. You do, you do a lot of hand rolling and stuff, don't you? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, anyway. Okay, is that it for graph? That's it. That's it for graph. You got it for graph. Okay. I'm sure the Jeremy cool. would like to have more time, but <laughs> sure, come to sorry. the show, Jeremy. <laughs> sorry, JT. Yep. One of the cool things that actually we discussed a little bit offline about a little bit about the why was there was an announcement around Windows 10 getting a built-in Linux kernel. So you know there's been WSL, Windows Subsystem for Linux, mm-hmm. uh, around for a while, and you've been able to install it on Windows 10 to get like effectively like Ubuntu running on your Windows 10 box, not dual boot at the same time as a proper separate subsystem and you'd be able to get a bash terminal and like proper Linux and stuff. Well, it's kind of going one step further with version two of WSL. And one of the big issues with WSL was like IO performance. And it meant Mm. that doing stuff like Docker development on WSL was a fraught with substandard experiences mostly due to speed of file system performance and stuff like that. And um, anyway, so they've done a bunch of work around that. But one of the really interesting things is now Microsoft is shipping its own Linux kernel. So what I'm my read on this is that you get like the Microsoft flavor of Linux. Let's just pause and have a think about that for a second. <laughs> Microsoft version of Linux. Steve Ballmer saw this one day, remember? Steve Barmer is, I can see his red face in Bellevue from here. Like, he'd be turning, well, I guess the stock's doing all right, so he's doing the best. Anyway, they, they're shipping a version of the Linux kernel, Microsoft are, and they're going to, you know, so you'll be able to install this or have it pre-installed. I'm not sure exactly of the shipping mechanism, mm-hmm. but uh, you'll be able to use WSL with that. And they're saying that this will help with all those speed issues and all those sorts of things to make it super compatible and nice and speedy and a great experience. 
for devs on Windows. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, like just seeing them do this was fascinating, but also Windows is getting better as a dev box for non-Microsoft devs historically. Does that make sense? So like we've got another piece of news that's coming up, but if you're a dev, a web developer doing stuff on a Mac now, this makes it way easier to choose Windows. And Microsoft's goal is to want you to want Windows versus Mac for that sort of development. But they need all of this stuff to be really killer and great for that to happen. Yeah, either that or they're or they're they don't want you to I'm not saying that what you said was wrong. I see it from the perspective of we don't want you to eliminate Windows from your developer options. Yeah. Because we don't have Linux. Totally. Totally. Right. So I was a little confused by this because this was described to me as epic. And this is not me being critical. This is me being more confused. I'm like, but we had WSL. And so how yeah. is having their own kernel going to fix it? And then I, the dialogue that we had, we had a pretty good back channel dialogue with some, with some people. And they said, well, imagine Windows Update modifying, doing the patching of your Linux kernel and you not having to do the other stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, that, that would simplify things. But I really I, miss recompiling my own kernel. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I thought that I was a little confused by it. I'm still a little confused by it, but I mean, like you were saying that somebody was saying how like the IO stuff with WSL was really challenging. Yeah, like pretty if you were cool. doing Docker and I, I, I'm not on windows, so I didn't experience that. So mm. it's cool to see that they opened up, that they opened themselves up to this. I mean, there's an, another thing that they did too, Related to that, not related to this, but another thing that they did. Well, actually, why don't you do the next one? Because I, I know that there's another piece that goes in with this, and I'll come back to mine. Yeah, exactly. the The stuff that goes hand in hand with this is. I thought you made a funny comment about this. I think it was you. It said, "I've never seen a marketing video for a command line <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for a command." And Microsoft have done it. So yeah, for a command prompt or a terminal. So Microsoft unveils Windows Terminal a new command line app for Windows. So, um, yeah, Microsoft are, are launching a sort of a new terminal that goes along with, you know, WSL and all the goodness. But they're sort of targeting it as sort of a modern terminal. So you'll be able to do things, well, modern, gosh, that's a terrible word, a new style terminal for today. I don't know. Postmodern. You'll be able to do stuff that's optimized for PowerShell, the command prompt, Windows subsystem for Linux, you know, you get bash prompts, all that sort of stuff, multiple tab support, all the things that anybody that's used iTerm is already used to. Emojis. Oh, yes, yes, we get emojis. Let's not be blasé about that. I can imagine, I'm just, I'm surprised we haven't got like the floss with emotes or something in Terminal. That would be pretty (laughs) sweet. Yeah, GPU-based emojis, let's be fair. Like, uh, GPU-based text rendering is a big deal in this. I'm actually keen to check it out. You know, I there's a terminal that I use at home on my Windows PC called Commander, CMDR, yep. Yep. and that seems to be the best one that I've used so far. But this, I think, has promise. I want to check it out. When I'm on Windows, Commander's the one that I use, and it seems like this would be the replacement for Commander, which is cool. But the thing that I just didn't get was how much PR they were doing about this. That's the part that kind of confused me. I was a little lost on like what was 
Uh, what was such a big deal about this piece? But I mean, it's cool. I'm glad that they're doing it. Now, the other thing that, that I saw that they were doing, and this is kind of like acknowledging that we need a new command prompt, acknowledging that we need to do a full-blown Linux distro ourselves that we maintain. This next one falls in that same category. So I found it interesting. Microsoft is embracing React, but embracing it in a big way. So what they've done is React is a web is traditionally a web framework for building web apps. But there's a thing called React Native. And the concept behind React Native is that you could still use React, but you could use it to build apps in a native environment. Like specifically, you use it for mobile development. Well, what they've done, and I need to dig more into this because it's a little, I'm a little confusing here. I'm a little confused here because I thought that Facebook was going through a complete revamp of React, Mm. uh, React Native at least, for performance reasons. Maybe that's done and it's no longer an issue now. Maybe it would be transparent to what Microsoft is doing here and Microsoft can just leverage it. But effectively what they're doing is they're bringing uh, React Native to Windows. And so what they've done so far is they've built a implementation of it using C Sharp, but that's going to change. And they're in the process of re-implementing React Native Windows for C++. So the announcement was, hey, we're doing React Native on Windows but now that we're announcing it, we're already re- we've already started re-implementing what we've already what we're announcing right now to switch mm. from C sharp implementation to a C implementation, which is going to give us better performance and better align with the shared C React Native core as it evolves. And I think that's what's going on with React. So, but what's cool about this is that I mean, I'm a React developer and I like building apps with React, and now I can take that exact same skill set and I can leverage at least a good percentage of it. And if I wanted to build a desktop app on top of Windows. And so it would be cool if like yeah. you can do it like this. And now what you don't have to do is take that React experience you have in building web apps and building a web app that's going to run an Electron, which is using Chrome, on your desktop to make it cross-platform. So yeah. that's kind of cool. I think there's some interesting strategy behind this. I think Microsoft are doing this because of all of the crappy Electron apps that they're shipping, like Teams. Mm-hmm. And this way, they could build the Teams client using React and all of that sort of stuff, as it, I believe, is today. But it's shipping an Electron, except they'd be able to, you know, like, I guess, compile it, for want of a better word, down into a native application that runs on Windows and get all of the all of the goodness to do with memory management and performance and that nativeness running on Windows. And they wouldn't have to ship apps that rely on Chrome to run them like Electron and the absolute memory gobbling mess that Electron apps are on Windows. So maybe part of it. I mean, I know that they're, they want to do, they want to have more of a native experience there. What would hold me back from doing that though, is that that's going to be great for Windows, but what's the Mac OS story? So, or the Linux story. So you don't have, maybe that comes next. Maybe they, or maybe they just keep shipping as an Electron app for those platforms. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're shipping a bunch of those type of apps, so that's I know nothing about it. Maybe it's just me. But well, I looked up a couple of the people on the GitHub repo, and they don't look like they're in the Teams division. So that might not be accurate. Anyway, we will see, I guess. Okay. Time will tell. Okay, moving right along. There is some news on Kubernetes very quickly. Microsoft are collaborating with Red Hat on some new auto-scaling technology for Kubernetes. And in particular, this is shipping as part of AKS. 
they've got together with Red Hat to build this technology. So I believe it's all about sort of standardizing the way you manage auto-scaling, how it's like event-driven auto-scaling. So, you know, when certain things are happening in your application, scaling up because of it and doing it in a manner that kind of works in a standard way. So whether you're running on like OpenShift, for example, Red Hat's OpenShift platform or on AKS and Azure, you can use this uh, new thing. It's called Kada. It's K-A-D-A. K-E-D-A. Yeah, there we go. That's the Kubernetes news. Oh, they GA'd virtual kubelet as well. Oh, that's big. Yeah, so now you can actually use it, which is the bottomless node concept, right? So if you're using Kubernetes in Azure, you can connect this thing like a virtual node, and it's kind of like this bottomless pit of compute that you run. Mm -hmm. And it's actually using Azure Container Instances behind the scenes. Hmm. I have a little bit here from on the Visual Studio side or on the dev side that, again, I'm a little confused at some of this stuff. kind of need to dig a little bit more into it, but... Microsoft is bringing Visual Studio to the browser. So it does not exist today, but imagine VS Code. You would go to online.visualstudio.com. You can go there right now. It redirects you to an announcement page. But in the future, <laughs> you will be able to do that. So, and that's not, that's cool because somebody else had already done something like that where they had taken the code base for VS Code and they had hosted it. So that's a nice option to be able to you know, work on your projects just straight through a browser. When Who you does are- that? Where's the motivation for this coming from? I don't get First, it. Well, I mean, think about like if I wanted, to, if you were doing something like on an iPad. I mean, it could. So I guess I mean, so. Yeah, yeah. But, or if you were doing, if you needed to edit a project inside of Azure DevOps, I mean, this would be a good a good way to do it. Hmm. So, I mean, if you don't okay. have a, you know, on your machine, but they also explain uh, that they're switch. They're going straight to. Uh, they announced that they are going straight to .NET five. So there's a. I don't do a lot of .NET work, but there was a bit of, apparently there's been some confusion with .NET 4 and how .NET 4 has been going on for uh, multiple years. And so they have just, they're skipping .NET 4 and they're going straight to .NET 5. Uh, I don't know if that's like a version naming standardization thing, but it's, huh. they're going to .NET 5. And there's three big promises that they, that they made for .NET 5. Java interop will be available on all platforms. Objective-C and Swift interop will be supported on multiple operating systems. And core framework will be extended to support static compilation of .NET, smaller footprints, and support for more operating systems. And so on the page that we link to, there is a timeline for the whole thing. So .NET, so it's supposed to be looking... I see what they're doing with versioning. Yeah, they're, they're standing everything, right? Because the .NET framework has been on like .NET 4. whatever, 7.2, I think is the latest. Something mm-hmm. like 4. Point. Anyway, yeah, framework's been on .NET 4 something. And so they're basically saying we can't call .NET .NET 4 because it'll conflict with all the versions of the .NET framework 4. So we're just going to start drawing a line in the sand and go .NET 5 is the thing. Agreed. And it looks like .NET Core, where we have .NET Core 3 right now, and it's going to, I think it releases in September, and there's long-term support that happens later. It looks like when .NET 5 releases, which is supposed to be November of 2020, that that is all the .NETs. Yes. So .NET Core, .NET Standard, .NET Framework, everything's .NET 5. Yeah, and everything will have the same version, I suspect. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So that does make things a little bit easier, because at least, some, like for me on the outside, I've, been, I've had a hard time understanding it, so... Yeah, now that that makes sense. So cool. How about Office? Office, I got a couple. I got a pair of announcements here. We're not going to spend too much time on this because this could take a lot of time to dive through. We got a link here about 
all of the stuff that they're doing around Microsoft Teams. They've done a whole bunch of stuff around Teams, like streamlining the app lifecycle for partner center integration, creating offers and app purchases. They've got improved platform capabilities, new APIs for the graph, like managing shifts for frontline workers, improvements for automating teamwork and reading org messages, and a bunch of other stuff too. New developer documentation, new training content. I got a link here to all this. This is a pretty big blog post. So if, you, if you're interested in diving into this, there's a lot of stuff that you can take a look at. Mm. And then the other one was a, was a, a big, this is a, a good, an interesting demo. So one of the things they, they debuted is a thing called the Fluid Framework. And I'm putting this in the office space, or in the not office space, that's the show. <laughs> I'm putting this in the office category, I guess. And the idea here with this Fluid Framework is that if I wanted to, if CJ, if you and I wanted to collaborate on like, say the show notes, and we had the show notes in a Word doc, then yeah. I could copy this component from the Word doc into a Teams conversation. You mm-hmm. and I could edit the piece in the Teams conversation, and it's editing that part of the Office doc all live. So we could collaborate somewhere else on a part of a document and have it show up. It looked like, I mean, for the devs that are out there, it looked like some SignalR kind of rendering cool gooiness you know, web component thing. I'll go older school than that. It looks like a modern version of Ole embedding. Oh boy. Oh Jesus, man. You took <laughs> way back. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who give who that term Ole gives nightmares to, you'll know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Actually now that I see it, that's what that's how Mary Joe called it out. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's like you know, it's like when you could first stick part of an Excel spreadsheet in a Word document. Mm. When they showed this, people went crazy. But it's like, oh, this is going to be a really big deal. I'm like, okay. I mean, yeah, I get it. I'm sorry I'm not getting excited about your feature, but it's just like, all right, I see the cool thing here, but you know, it doesn't, whatever. I guess we'll see what people do with it. I did have one more thing here that I would be remiss if I didn't mention this because I, I got a kick out of it. The same time that Build was going on, Google I.O. was going on. And yep. I watched the keynote. I watched the developer keynote. I was kind of unimpressed, like the same way I was with Build. And that's why I was kind of wondering if, oh, is this a bigger kind of a thing that we're dealing with? But mm-hmm. there was one session that I'll link to. It's what's new with Chrome. And specifically, they're talking about Chromium. And so mm-hmm. all you people that can't stand Chrome or can't stand Google, this is going to apply to you because it's going to be in your Edge browser eventually. But have you ever tried to do lazy loading of images in a web page? So they don't all render right away, but as you scroll and then you stop, the image kind of like shows up and it's a cool, it's a cool like little like, you know, parallax, not parallax, but it's a cool little effect yeah. to draw attention to it. Yeah. Chrome, it, that's, it's a pain in the ass to build, to, to implement yourself. A lot of JavaScript, a lot of third-party libraries. Well, Chrome's like, you know what? We'll make it easy. Put on your image, loading equals lazy as an attribute. And they'll do it for you. Nice. Do the same thing to an iframe. Hmm. It's small potatoes, but I mean, it's it just it's a it's a productivity boost, so it's nice. Yeah, that is nice. Yeah, I'm not much of a web developer, but I could use that. Oh, I mean, I've seen your cloud market share site. I agree. (laughs) It deserves the mockery. That's all I'm going to say. ACS Voitanos delivers on-demand video-based training for developers on the latest SharePoint extensibility model from Microsoft in his course, Mastering the SharePoint Framework. CJ's Hyperfish automates the collection of user profile information from users and organizational directories, such as Office 365, SharePoint, 
Active Directory, and HR systems. The Secure Service supports on-premises, hybrid, and online environments. Bring your directory to life at hyperfish.com. All right, CJ, we have ranted and raved for nearly 59 minutes, actually, my counter. Oh, my goodness. How does it get that long? Okay, we'll blaze through our picks then, shall we? We shall. Uh, You want to do our listener pick first? Sure. I know you love talking to me each week, and now I know why. Elaine Van Bergen, one of the show friends from one of of the show's good friends from Australia. She works at Microsoft, who's she's won the guest pick or listener pick for this week. And it's entitled New Zealanders have the world's sexiest accent, new study says, which at first I thought, come on now, this has got to be parody. And I don't understand it, but apparently it's true. What can I say? We sound awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You know... Okay. First up, I don't believe it, but also it just made me laugh my head off. And I've been getting mocked about it in the office here mercilessly ever since this came out. Yep. (laughs) Apparently it got voted outrageously charming, (laughs) which is funny because whenever I call New Zealand and have to deal with, you know, a call center or a bank or, you know, whatever it happens to be, I always just cringe and go, oh my God, is that what I sound like? Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, apparently. Thanks, AC. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Nah, it's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah, thanks. Anyway, Congratulations. So, Elaine, thanks for, the, um, thanks for the note. Thanks for letting me know that I'm the better sounding out of both of us. And, um, yeah, we'll send you a photo too, Key. There you go. <laughs> um, I, Funny. My pick this week is, uh, I, I think it's kind of a feel-good story. So I found this on Hacker News. And there's a site called archive.is. And uh, it's a very popular site. But on the other side, too, there was an issue with it and that was exposed that actually I think is a good story. So about a year ago, I think, uh, Cloudflare announced their privacy-focused DNS of 1.1.1.1. And so a lot of people use the Google DNS, which is 8.8.8.8 or 8.8.4.4. One of the reasons people don't like using that is because Google is watching all of those name resolutions and they're using that as part of their data collection and making search better and all that stuff. Some people don't like that. They they want to be able to browse the web completely anonymously. So Cloudflare stood up that whole 1.1.1. Well, all of a sudden, people that were using it realize that anything coming to going to archive.is is not showing up. It's not resolving. And so they went to do a couple of checks with it. And they found that sure enough, Cloudflare's 1.1.1 DNS, about one, is not responding to it. It's not resolving it. Yeah. So he posted this guy posted this thing on Hacker News. Now a guy from Hack, a guy from, from Cloudflare actually jumped in and one I think it's the first reply or at least the most popular one. Yes, the most he popular. Said, he said, we don't block we don't block it or any other domain. Doing so, we believe, would violate the integrity of DNS and the privacy and security promises we made our users when we launched the service. Archive.is's authoritative DNS servers return bad results to 1.1.1.1 when we query them. And I've proposed we just fix it on our end, but quite rightly, the team said that that would violate the integrity of DNS and the privacy and security promises we made when we launched the service. The owner of archive.is has explained that he returns bad results to us because we don't pass along some additional subnet information. That information leaks information about a requester's IP and in turn sacrifices Mm -hmm. the privacy of the users. It's especially problematic because they work to encrypt more DNS traffic since a request from the resolver to authoritative DNS is typically unencrypted. We are aware of a real 
world examples where nation state actors have monitored EBNS subnet information to track individuals, which was mm. in privacy for security policies of 1.1.1. So he basically said, we don't block it. They just give us bad stuff. And the reason they give us bad stuff is because we're not giving them the tracking data, the data that could be used for tracking users, which is part of the service. And they're like, we could fix it, but that goes against the whole reason of this whole service. And so it's kind of a really cool little story here of them kind of saying, Red, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I start, and you just see people going like the number one response to his thing is, you know, Cloudfire for choosing not to hastily slap a bandit on the problem like this just makes me feel compelled to you more compelled to continue using 1.1.1.1. And so much so, I mean, I, I felt the same way. I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go switch over my, all the stuff in my house to go through and use 1.1.1 for the privacy sake. And that's, that makes that's me feel good. good. Yeah, for sure. Wow, fascinating. It's good to yeah. see some of the background behind this stuff because um, often it's DNS is kind of a critical piece of infrastructure currently. Mm-hmm. Slightly different tangent. Do you know you can hack your tractors? So apparently, uh, I, I read an article on vice.com entitled Why American Farmers Are Hacking Their Tractors with Ukrainian Firmware. And you know how you know how people root their iPhones and then like put their own stuff on there, like to crack yeah. crack iPhones and put your own third party apps on it and all that sort of stuff. Apparently, farmers are doing it with their tractors, and in particular, John Deere tractors, because John Deere have been um, locking down. You can't just change a part in your John Deere tractor. You got to take it to a service center, apparently get an official part and then have that service center install that part and unlock that part working with your tractor, like using uh-huh. some sort of digital signature code thing. Anyway, so there's lots of farmers that are like, this is ridiculous. I live hun- tens or hundreds of miles away from service centers. I can't possibly be expected to do this. It's kind of ridiculous and it breaks the whole right to repair and all that sort of stuff. And the DCMA, which is the digital... Linear Copyright Act, is that right? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Specifically calls out that manufacturers can't protect, I think it's the code, they can't copyright the code for things like cars specifically. And so the farmers are basically saying, hey, our tractors fall into the same category of protected class from DCMA. We should be able to modify stuff, hack things, change stuff however we like, repair stuff, and you're not letting us. But apparently there's quite a market for hacked firmware from somewhere in the Ukraine and there's all these farmers that are like patching their tractors with it. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I thought it was kind of a unique workaround. (laughs) Very cool. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's kind of like your Tesla, right? Like if you wanted to put in a new set of headlights, for example, and you put your headlights in and then you couldn't control those headlights. And it was like some error message popped up and said, you need to go to a service center and get them to, you know, sort of um, install those headlights and activate them. Right. Yeah. If you weren't allowed to change your headlights, it'd be a similar kind of deal. So yeah. I just thought it was fascinating that there's very, well, what I assume is a very non-technical audience who are being forced into doing dirty things with their tractors because John Deere aren't are shutting them out of it or trying to. It sure is interesting to see the things that people are that where these different aspects of like of life and and business and everything where you see people going low level and having to get techie and get into different industries things that you wouldn't normally expect. Yeah, I wonder if when you download these 
pieces of software. You buy them and then obviously download them. But it reminds me of those, remember the crackers? So if you like had a piece of software and you download a cracker, I wonder if like when you open the cracker for John Deere, it has that same like techno music playing and, <laughs> and, and you're wondering, is my C drive being formatted right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be fun. I remember those. Yeah, that happened to me once. Anyway. Cool. So hacking tractors. Awesome. Well, Hey man, it's been a big episode because we did have uh, it was a big conference week this week and a lot of news. Yes. Thank you very much for the Build Conference. Thank you very much for another Azure outage. Always give us stuff to talk about. But sure. I will talk to you next week, man. We won't drag it any longer. Yeah, we've got. I think we're going to run with an interview next week from Jessica Dean that I did at Build. She's a cloud advocate for Microsoft on the Azure team. So um, yeah, fascinating uh, chat with her. Cool. Awesome. Well, CJ and all of our listeners, I will see you next week. Cheers, bro. Ciao. Did you like this episode? Please tweet about it and drop a five-star review in iTunes. Word of mouth recommendations are the most effective ways for us to grow the show. We'd really appreciate it. If you have a question for us, go to microsoftcloudshow.com slash questions, where you can submit it as text or record it as an MP3 or WAV file and provide a link so we can play your question on the show. Our theme music is brought to you by Keith Ritchie. For more information on Keith's music, head to music.kritchie.com. You can subscribe to us in iTunes and Google Play Store by searching for Microsoft Cloud Show or via RSS at microsoftcloudshow.com, where you'll also find show notes of each episode. You can also find us on Facebook searching for Microsoft Cloud Show or on Twitter at MS Cloud Show. And finally, sign up for our mailing list by heading over to our website and entering your email to interact with us, participate in upcoming interviews, and other cool stuff. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.